want you to join me um, in an exercise this morning, if you will. I want you to think for a moment of a time in your life, and I want the kids to think through this too. You don't have quite the breadth and length of time of knowing Jesus as your parents probably do, but I want you to think as well of maybe something in your life or a time in your life where you struggled and you had to rely on faith to make it through that time. I'll give you just a few seconds in your mind to think through a time like that, or maybe it's been something recent, maybe it's something from a little while ago, but just think for just a second. See if you can come up with that in your head. I won't ask you to share it, though I could, but I won't. Now, I want you to think, you made it through that time, obviously, because you're here. I want you to think through now how God might have walked you through that time what he might have done, or what the result of that must have been. In other words, maybe he had something you were worried about, and how did God deal with that? You know, Kimberly and I have talked um, about some of the issues with her, her injuries that she suffered. You know, she suffered some injuries in, in swimming, which meant she couldn't swim anymore. Well, then she kind of reluctantly joined the cross-country team and discovered there that she found she had a talent for running, and then ended up injured, and that really brought her down. But then God took care of that. She finished the season exceptionally well. Um, and then now she was going to join track this year and suffered injury again and wasn't able to run track, and so now she's looking forward to what comes next. But obviously there's a little bit of you know, trepidation there. And so we were talking about that the other day on how, well, how did God answer each one of those? Look, you know, the swimming stuff, you were really bummed out about that, but, man, now you love cross-country, and you're looking at that as it was a good thing you were injured, right? Look how God answered that. And then with the injury from her cross-country last year, we saw in the middle of the season when she was quite bummed out about it, what God actually did with the end of the season, you know, her, her final track meet of the year, big invitational. She finished eighth place out of 140-some kids. Um, God does some neat things with that. And so we talked through that about how that applied today. So now, with that in your head, as you're thinking about that, um, I want you to think of another time, maybe something else that happened, in the same type of thing. How did God take care of that for you? Now, why do I ask you to do this? If you're anything like me, even though God has probably taken you through some difficult times or some times that exercised your faith, the next time something happens, if you're anything like me, you struggle again a little bit. Maybe trusting him, and you have to kind of learn the lesson more than once. Now, I will ask for a show of hands. Anybody like me in that where, you know what, God does things for you over and over and walks you through times of struggle where you have to apply your faith, and yet you seem to keep going through those things, and while it may get easier, you find yourself maybe sometimes having to take a deep breath and maybe struggle through a little bit and ask God to help you get through that time. Am I the only one? That goes through. No, I see a couple of heads nodding. You're not brave enough to raise your hands, but I see a couple of heads nodding. We're going to get an example of that today. Maybe not quite to that degree, but it has to do with the disciples. And so there's going to be three things in our passage today that I'm going to focus on. And they're really, the best way to describe it is maybe principles of our faith. In other words, what kind of, um, just some, some things about faith that we can learn and what it should maybe look like and, and some other things. It comes from Mark chapter 9, and it's a rather um, interesting event that takes place. Jesus and his three disciples had just recently been up on the mountain where the transfiguration took place. And they're now coming down the mountain, and they're joining the rest of the disciples. But as they approach the rest of the disciples, there's a lot of 
turmoil. There's some arguments going on between the other disciples, those that were not a part of the transfiguration experience, and some scribes. They're basically there arguing. So we come to that in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. I'm going to read verses 14 through 19 to start with. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, meaning Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? In other words, it, it really you might rather render that as, what are you guys arguing about? Because there's obviously an argument and a debate going on of sorts. The first thing that we're going to see here as we look at um, verses 14 through 19 is that a lack of faith actually can prevent us from doing something that we should be able to do or we should do. Okay, A lack of faith can prevent us from doing what God has called us to do, what we should be able to do. And we're going to see that in the disciples here. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John return from the transfiguration. They encounter this dispute between the other nine disciples and the scribes. And there were probably, there were likely other people as well. They may have been involved with the discussion and the debate. Now it's not clear exactly what they were arguing about, but it had something to do with the disciples' inability to heal a demon-possessed boy. The particular demon possession was extremely violent in nature. I want you to look at verses 17 and 18. One of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. Another way to translate that is, makes him limp. He's just exhausted when he's, when he's done. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Now, when I was growing up, we had this dog named Freddy. He was a little poodle. He had been severely abused by his previous owner, and he suffered seizures on a regular basis. And what was interesting is there were times where all of a sudden we would, you know, us kids were fairly young, we would notice Freddy starting a seizure. And we were taught and instructed by our parents that when that would happen, to immediately start pushing furniture out of the way. Because when he would go into seizures, he would flop all over. It wasn't just a... He would literally flop all over the living room. And so we would start pushing things, furniture out of the way, coffee table, end table, so that he wouldn't injure himself. And this would go on for sometimes 30 seconds, maybe a minute. But when he would finish, and he would, he would, he would foam at the mouth. When he would finish, he would be completely exhausted. Eyes would be closed. You would think that he was dead, aside from the fact that he was breathing. You could see him breathe. Totally exhausted. That's kind of the picture you get here. There are some people for that reason that believe that what was really happening here, these are secular scholars or, or liberal scholars, would say, well, he just was suffering a seizure. Except the text tells us that this particular seizure, if you will, that he experienced was specifically related to demon possession. And this particular demon was an aggressive one. We see it a little bit later. Verse 22, it says that, It often threw him both into the fire and the water to destroy him. This demon would try at times to destroy, to kill this young boy. Now can you think for a minute what that father must have been going through to see this happening to his boy? So this man comes looking for Jesus, but Jesus, as we know, was up on the mountain with the transfiguration taking place. So when the man shows up, he sees some of the disciples there, and so he asks them, he says in verse 18, I told your disciples to cast it out. Notice he doesn't say that he asked them to. He says, I told them to. Cast out, he's desperate. Cast out this demon. 
But he says, but they couldn't do it. Now that's a little bit puzzling because earlier Jesus had given the apostles the power to do exactly that. And they went out and did it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Turn there with me. Just a couple of pages to the left. Chapter 6, verse 12 through 13. It says, and they went out and they preached that men should repent and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. A little bit later on, they come back and they report to Jesus all the wonderful things they had done, the demons they had cast out, the miracles that happened, the people that were healed. And so they clearly had the ability to do this because Jesus gave it to them. However, this particular time they couldn't do it. So the man says, I came, but they, they couldn't do it. And so now they were arguing. Maybe the argument was, what's wrong with you guys? Why can't you heal my son? And they might have been going, well, I don't know. So whatever it was, they were, there was commotion and discussion and what sounds like an argument taking place here. Because they were, at this point, somehow almost incapable of doing what they should have been able to do. Jesus had given them authority to do it. So we find in verse 19 that Jesus provides a rebuke, tells us why in some respects they could not cast out the demon, and basically it comes down to this, it was a lack of faith. Look at verse 19. And he, Jesus, answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I put up with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. That's a pretty stern rebuke. When we look at Matthew's account, in fact, why don't you go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 17. When we look at Matthew's account, we know that in this rebuke, which in Mark appears to apply to more the more general population, in Matthew chapter 17, if you look at that, you'll see that it also includes a specific group of individuals. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20 when the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, how come we couldn't do it? He says, because of the littleness of your faith. Did you catch that? Because of the littleness of your faith. So Jesus, back in Mark chapter six or Mark chapter 9, when, when he's answering what it was that prevented this from happening, at least includes the disciples and basically says, partly because you don't have enough faith. The littleness of your faith is partly to blame here. However, we see in Mark chapter 9 here that it wasn't just the faith of the disciples that was the problem. It was the faith of those that were around him because he basically calls out the whole generation. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? The you there refers to the whole entire crowd. So not only did the disciples have an issue with faith, but the people around him had an issue of faith as well. A little bit later we find out that even the man, the father himself, was struggling with faith. And we'll see that in the, or the statement that he makes to Jesus. We'll get to it in a little bit here. So it wasn't just the disciples' lack of faith that prevented them from casting out the demon, but the general lack of faith for all those involved. Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, we have another very similar situation. Mark chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. You remember when Jesus was in Nazareth? They basically ran him out of town, but... If you look at verses 5 and 6, it says that he could do no miracle there except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Why couldn't he do miracles there? Because he wondered at their unbelief. 
Their lack of faith in Nazareth prevented Jesus from doing miracles in Nazareth, except for a few. And that's exactly what we see here. The problem that we run into at this particular instance when this man came to Jesus' disciples, that they were not able to cast out the demon, partly because there wasn't enough faith. The man obviously thought Jesus could do it when he first got there because he came specifically looking for Jesus. So you've got to ask the question, what, what happened? The disciples clearly came back after casting out demons and healing people. They had been all excited. Look at what we were able to do, Jesus. So when this man came to them, they probably thought that they could do it. But what happened with them? Apparently, the faith that they had initially sort of diminished. What happened? It's hard to say. Could be that when the demon didn't first respond, that they lost faith. Maybe they saw it as too difficult. The man, when he got there, maybe when he first got there, realized, well, Jesus wasn't here. Maybe he thought, well, if Jesus isn't here, what's my real hope? That might be why he demanded that the disciples do it instead of asking. We're not really sure. But I think as we look at this, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, do we ever find ourselves in a very similar situation? I've already mentioned time and time again that when I went through seminary, um, I went without any idea of how it was going to be completely cared for. And yet every single semester I saw God answer exactly what I needed. He never gave me too much. He never gave me too little, except for one time where somebody gave me an extra hundred bucks I didn't need. And within 30 minutes, I found somebody that needed it. Now you would think that I would learn through five years of doing that, four years of doing that, um, that God can take care of any financial issue that I might ever face. But do you, do you wonder if I ever wonder about finances? I do all the time. I've got a family to take care of, you know? Um, I mentioned to some of you that uh, this, last, uh, this last year, about a year ago, um, my uh, compensation for my job was reduced by about $400 a month. And immediately... My heart, Sam, like, what are we going to do? How, we, can't, we can't suffer that kind of hit. How are we going to... You would think I would go, piece of cake, God. You can do it. It's all up to you. Well, here I am a year later, and God has somehow miraculously taken care of every one of our needs. Just like he did when I was going through seminary. So, why is it that we still struggle? Sometimes we just, we do. And we're just like the disciples. For whatever reason, Jesus had to tell them, it's your faith. But again, they went from being able to cast out demons to now somehow struggling. Something happened. I think it's just what happens to all of us. For whatever reason, we struggle sometimes. And when we struggle with faith, it prevents us from doing things. It prevents us from stepping out sometimes. You know, It prevents us maybe from making certain decisions that we should probably make. It causes us to worry and to fear when it really shouldn't. Now I'll ask you in your own head again to think through maybe a time where you really struggled, where maybe your lack of faith caused you to worry or to not do things maybe you should do. I can rattle off some things in my own head of things that I've been afraid to do or things I've been reluctant to do or maybe things that I've waited to do simply because I was struggling with trusting the Lord, even though 
he has more than proven himself time and time and time again. Now, maybe pastors aren't supposed to say that because they're supposed to be perfect, right? No. And so I think the first lesson, at least for me as I look at this, is that that lack of faith really stands in our way sometimes. It prevents us from doing things that we ought to be able to do or we should be able to do them or decisions we should make. And we see that here with not only the disciples, but this man himself who apparently struggles. We'll see that in a little bit. The crowd around him. They were obviously there for a reason, right? The crowd came to see something. And yet Jesus blames them for not having faith as a crowd. So even they struggled. Let's move on to the second principle. Chapter 9, verse 20. Notice that in verse 20, when Jesus asked for the boy to be brought to him, the demon actually then violently convulses the boy. Look at verse 20. It says, They brought him the boy, or brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Three times in this passage, we're told of the extremely violent nature of this particular possession. First, when the father comes, he says that that's what happened. Here we see the demon actually do that, throw the boy around. When Jesus, in verse 26, later casts a demon out, the demon decides he's not going to do it willfully. He decides to further torment the boy before he leaves. It's much like um, punching somebody before you walk away. You know? So we've got this extremely violent demon here. Now the text doesn't say how old the boy is, but this has been happening since childhood, it says. Verse 21. When Jesus asked his father, how long has this teen been, or how long has this been happening to him, he says, from childhood. To make matters worse, if they could be any worse, it says that the demon often, she gets it, often tried to kill the boy. Look at verse 22. The father reports this. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So as we come upon the man here, this section will focus on him. We learn this principle that sometimes we need help with our faith. Sometimes we need help. And this young man, or this father, is going to show that to us here in a second. And I think the reason why we sometimes need help is because sometimes the things that we face are just too much for us to bear. I think that was the case with this father. I think about... um, you know, Katie, when she was really young, I don't remember the age, um, had developed, I think, I don't know what the technical term is for it, but it's kidney reflux. It's basically when she would go to the bathroom, urine would flow backwards up towards the kidneys. It's not supposed to happen. But it's fairly frequent with young kids. The problem is, if you get a urinary tract infection, which is typically in the bladder, and urine goes back up towards the kidney, well, then you could get a kidney infection and it'll, it'll kill the kidneys. It's not something you want to mess with. So we discovered that in Katie's case. And so she would have to go in for regular, is it a CT scan? Is that what it was, Amy? It's an imaging. And what they would, yeah. But the, the invasive test they would do basically would be to insert a tube and to pump her full of fluid. And... Uh, <laughs> I remember watching her on that table. 
And I would put my hands at her head. And as they're inserting that tube and she is screaming on that table, my heart would just break seeing that. And it finally got to the point where I told Amy after a couple of years, we went to her pediatrician and we said, now she's never had another kidney or never had another urinary tract infection. So we do not need to do these tests anymore. Because the only danger is if she gets an infection. So there's no reason to put her through these tests anymore. And we had to argue. In fact, we left our pediatrician for that reason and found another pediatrician that agreed with us. But, man, my heart would break because I would put my hands at her head and she would be screaming as they're doing that to her. But we, we had to do it because they, they, they needed to make sure that, she, that that was healed because if it didn't heal on its own, they would have to probably do something invasive to, to cure that because the likelihood is that at some point she would start, to, you know, she would get infections again, right? But we finally had to put a stop to it. But I think about this man and his child, what he must have been going through. And so when, when push came to shove, we see that this father even begins to struggle with his own faith. He goes there because he expects Jesus to heal him. When Jesus isn't there, he, the next best hope he has is that the disciples can do it. But when the disciples can't do it, so do you wonder why he might struggle now? Matthew and Luke indicate that this man actually, when Jesus showed up, fell to his knees and begged Jesus. Mark doesn't record that, but Matthew and Luke both do. He literally falls to his knees and begs Jesus now to heal his son. But notice what he says. Look at verse 22 in in Mark chapter 9. Look at the way that that starts out. Jesus asked him how long it had been happening. He said it was from childhood. Has often thrown him into both the fire and into the water. Then look at what the man says. But if you can do anything. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You're looking at the God of the universe and you're saying, if you can help me out maybe, can you do something? What happened from, I brought him to you to be healed, to, if you can do anything. Do you ever find yourself in that place where you wonder if God can get you through whatever it is you're struggling with? Some of us aren't willing to admit that. Maybe we don't willfully say, well, I don't believe God can do it. Maybe it's just this, and I'm really struggling. And what it really amounts to is, you just don't really think God can do it or will do it. In fact, I think it's probably more the latter. I know God can do it, I just don't know that he will do it. And so this man comes to Jesus as if, if, I love Jesus' response. Jesus clearly rebukes him, but in a very gentle way. He asks him a rhetorical question, verse 23. Jesus says to him, if you can, I can imagine that's probably the way he said it. If I can do this. All things are possible to him who believes. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, it's not about whether I can heal your son. Of course I can. It's about whether you have faith to believe that I can heal your son. So Jesus puts this squarely back on him. 
So for us, the question isn't if God can do it. It's whether we trust that he can. And that's where the problem lies a lot of times. It's paralyzing. Isn't it? You know something has to be done. You've got to make a decision. Or you're struggling with something. It's paralyzing to sit back and, well, if you can do something, God. Jesus had demonstrated over and over again that he could clearly heal the sick and cast out demons. In fact, that's why the man brought him to him. But sometimes doubts get in the way. Like, in this case, maybe seeing the disciples fail to be able to heal his son. So Jesus reminds the man that he needs to have faith because all things are possible when one has faith. Now, we have to be a little cautious here. Notice that Jesus says all things are possible. He doesn't say they're probable. Did you catch that? It isn't that you just have to muster up enough faith and by doing so, God is now obligated to do exactly what you ask. It's not the way it works. But, the flip side of that is it's not possible if you don't believe. That's the key. Jesus is not promising that simply believing in something will make it happen. Rather, he's stating that when we approach God, we have to do so in faith. In fact, that's exactly what James says. Turn to James chapter 1. Oops. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it's probably one of the most applicable ones in Scripture when it comes to something like this. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's a command. It says we're supposed to consider it an opportunity for joy when we go through difficult times, trials. Why? Verse 3, we can translate that, because you know, knowing is a participle there, it describes what's going on, but because you know that the testing of your faith, the trials are going through, produce endurance, which is the ability to live long-term, in other words. In other words, you know what, we know what it's like running on the soccer field. You run around a lot on the soccer field. What's endurance? Not getting tired. Not getting tired, right? So James says here, you don't want to get tired in your faith. God needs to put you through trials. And by doing that, it produces endurance. So knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result. Which is what? So that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the goal. That your faith might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But then look at verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What? But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. In other words, he says, you're going through trials, ask for wisdom. But you know what? You have to do it in faith, because if you ask for wisdom and then you doubt God's going to do it, you should not expect to receive anything. God shouldn't be expected to talk to you, to provide you wisdom, if you're not willing to ask in faith. And it applies here as well. And so, we look at this here, and I ask, have you ever found yourself in that spot? You want God to do something, but you're not quite willing to either accept that He will or that He can. Look at what this man does in verse 24. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Does that strike anyone as odd? I believe, but help me believe. 
doesn't strike me as odd at all. And why not, Dave? There you go. The point of this section here is that sometimes we need help. And God recognizes that. Look at Jesus' response to this man. He doesn't rebuke him for that. Just muster it up and have the faith I told you to have. Instead, he does what? When Jesus saw, verse 25, that a crowd was rapidly, rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. In other words, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus respond to this man's plea? did exactly what the man asked him to do and healed his son. Jesus recognized this man's plea for help. What we have is him in his head saying, I, I believe in my head, but I'm really having a trouble making that connection to the emotions in the heart. I think it's where oftentimes we struggle. In our head, we know God can do all things, right? We know that God promises to take care of us. But sometimes the heart and the emotions really pull us away from that. And so it becomes this battle between our head, what we know to be true, and our heart, which doesn't always feel it. I'll be real, real frank. Oftentimes it's my emotions that get in the way of everything. My head says, God will do it, God will take care of it, but I still struggle because the heart doesn't always want to follow along. Why? Because the heart is deceitfully wicked. Is it not? We're still in the flesh, and the flesh is weak. Paul says the spirit is what? Willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay? And so what we have with this man here, the lesson we can learn from this is, it's okay to ask for help when you're struggling. If you find yourself in a difficult spot, and you're really having trouble exercising the faith that your head tells you you should be exercising, then cry out to God. God, you know what? I'm having trouble here. I know I should trust you in this. I know I can trust you in this, but I'm having trouble trusting you in this. Then go ahead and cry out to him. Help my unbelief, Lord. Why do we think he gave us the Holy Spirit? He's called our helper. Why do we need help if we could do it on our own? Isn't that amazing? So even when we struggle in our faith, God says, I can even help you with that. That in and of itself is an act of faith, is it not? And so I think the second thing we can learn from this is that sometimes we just need help. And that applies to not only the one who's newly saved and just comes to know Jesus, or the one that's known Christ for 30 some odd years, or the man or woman that walks with them for most of their life. I'd be willing to bet that if we would pull aside some of our Favorite old saints. I've got one back in Wisconsin I still refer to as my mentor who's 88 years old right now. I bet you if I'd be willing to sit him down and ask him, he'd probably say, there are times, there are times that I have to ask God to help. This is the reality of it for us. And so it's okay to ask for help. In fact, I think we need to. I think we need to. The last principle I want to look at is really, it really gets at the heart of faith itself. Verses 28 through 29, and it's going to be this. Genuine, refle- uh, genuine faith actually reflects dependence on the divine, dependence on God. 
I think sometimes, you know, we live in a, in a place here, and I've, I've shared this over, you probably get sick of me saying this, but we live in a place where we are not often really tried seriously in our faith like many Christians are around the world. There was a report that came out from from a British individual, um, Brit- actually the, the um, government in Great Britain, asked for a report to be produced on religious persecution around the world. And they came out just recently, a couple of days ago, and said that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world. This is from a secular source who admits that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world. And so in some respects, we're not really tried like some of them are. They say uh, you know, that three to 4,000 Christians every year are murdered simply because of their faith. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try. We're not tried. We don't do difficult times. But... I think sometimes what we call faith is just us relying on ourselves. Because it looks Christian. You know? We do it on our own power and our own ability. That's not faith. It doesn't mean it's wrong. There are certain things we can do. I can show up on a Sunday morning. I don't, let me put it this way, I don't need faith to show up for church on a Sunday morning. I don't even need faith to pray. I can do that on my own. Should I? Not necessarily. Genuine faith, when it's exercised, is a dependence on God. Take a look at what happens in verses 28 through 29. When Jesus came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? Meaning the demon. And he said to them, Well, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot out by anything but prayer. You may have in your Bibles an additional verse there that says, in fasting, it's doubted that that's part of the original text. But he says, this one does not come out by anything but prayer. Now we, we see here that the disciples are obviously puzzled. Remember, they were able to do this before. This man shows up, I would imagine that they thought, no problem, we've done this many times. So they were a bit puzzled because it didn't work for some reason this time. So it's enough so that they have to ask Jesus about it. How come we couldn't do it? It worked last time, Jesus. You know, you get maybe Peter rattling off, well, hey, I did this guy, I did this guy, I did this guy. And maybe James says, you know what, I got one more than that because I did these four over here. And who knows, maybe, maybe one of the other disciples blew them all away with the ten demons he cast out. Whatever it was. Why couldn't we do it this time? When we compare Mark's account with Matthew's account, we get a pretty good picture of what actually happened. Mark's account here, he says it couldn't come out by anything but prayer. By referring to this kind, Jesus certainly indicates that there were different kinds of demons. Oftentimes what we see in the scriptures are demons that immediately cower before Jesus. Some of them even beg him not to cast them out and send them away. This demon, however, puts up a battle, puts up a fight. And Jesus indicates by saying, well, this kind, he seems to indicate that this was a much more stubborn, maybe a much more powerful. We would expect that in the angelic realm, much like the human realm. So we do see here that this might have been a much more difficult demon because Jesus said this one required something beyond what they were able to do at this point. This demon again, instead of cowering in fear and 
doing exactly what Jesus said puts up a little bit of a fight because even when Jesus casts it out it still puts up a fight he finally leaves because he has to so Jesus says in this particular case this one required something additional it suggests that the disciples had not prayed about it maybe they tried to cast it out and it didn't cast out so maybe they tried harder maybe they raised their voices and I kind of get a kick out of watching some of these buffoons on television that do their little crusades where they go down to the South America and other places and take advantage of all the poor people down there and steal money from them all to cast out their demons and they're putting their fingers in their ears and they're shouting and yelling and all this, you know, demon be gone, demon be gone, or whatever it is, you know, and making a big show out of all of it. Well, maybe the disciples thought if they raised their voices here, maybe that would work. Maybe try a little bit harder. But they apparently had not prayed, which means what? If they didn't pray, whose help did they forget to ask for? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you did this on your own. That was a problem. Maybe it never dawned on them that they had to ask God for help. Maybe it's because they became so comfortable before. You know, I would imagine this. If if God had given me the ability to heal people, and I went on the circuit and began to heal people, I could almost guarantee you that after doing that for a while, I probably would start to rely on my own abilities to some degree. I probably wouldn't quite pray as often or ask God for help as often because I know my temperament. I know who I am. I would become comfortable in it. That's one of the challenges of preparing every week to be able to preach. Is after doing it for 30 some odd years, you know what, I could sit down and whip out a sermon. But there's a problem with that. I'm not supposed to do that. But I can tell you there's been times where I've been three quarters of the way through studying and all of a sudden I've kind of gone, man, I haven't prayed about this. I haven't really asked how this applies to me. I haven't asked God what it is He wants me to see in this. Why? Because it becomes second nature. Our faith is oftentimes like that. Where it just becomes second nature. We go into robot mode and we just do what we do and we show up for church, we pray, we do this, we do that. It just becomes second nature and we no longer engage God in the way that we should. But genuine faith is dependence on Him, which means if we are exercising faith, whatever we do, we mean we are relying on Him and His power to do it. Even if we could do it ourselves, because if we do it ourselves, it's no longer faith. And I suspect that's what the disciples here were now struggling with. It was on their own abilities. Matthew chapter 17, 20, Jesus said this to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. The problem we have to struggle with with this here, this idea of the mustard seed, is not that they just had to muster up more faith. He's basically saying, this particular instance did not have any faith to it. Because even if, it, if it, even if it had faith of a mustard seed, that demon would have been gone. So the, what he's really trying to convey to them is there was no faith in this. And that's why he told them, you needed to pray. You needed to involve God in this. What they should have done is a man showed up, they should have gotten on their knees and said, Lord, take care of this. But I suspect that they probably did much like that culture did at the time. There were, there were um, 
mystics and others that would attempt to cast out demons. And they had these formulas they would use. One of them is they would speak the name of the demon, which is partly why when, when Jesus approached and he'd been asked one of the names of the demons, and he said his name was Legion. It was part of the culture and society, and Jesus was doing that as a demonstration of exercising authority over him. doesn't mean he was practicing the, the formula they would use, but it was common. And so others would mimic that. Well, what we find here is that these particular, or the disciples in this particular instance, did not rely on faith. They did not rely, ultimately, or I'm sorry, they did not rely on God, which means it was not an exercise in faith. And so they were unable to do it. So the principle that we can learn from this is that genuine faith is an exercise of reliance upon the divine. I'm going to give a couple of examples here of some difficulties. I think about Brian and Wendy. I was thinking about them again the last couple of days. Brian sent out another update. Wendy, her cancer is a struggle right now. They've had to change drugs. For a while, it looked like she was going to be completely healed. Now they're struggling a little bit and had to change drugs. But on top of that, she's still bedridden. I saw Pastor Steve Mitchell um, at Walmart on Friday, and he had just been—he had just seen Brian. I don't know if it was that same day or the day before. And he said, "You know, Wendy's pretty much bedridden. She almost can't talk." Can't do anything on her own. And he said, the kids take care of Wendy during the day. Brian comes home and takes care of her every night. I think they're going on three months now. And I've been thinking, man, what that must be like. He's got to be exhausted. Absolutely exhausted. What might he be struggling with to be able to do that? I think about Matt and Gina and the difficulties that they've been through and how many times they had to rely on the Lord to get them through what they're struggling with. I think about the Wittens and the year-long battle of struggling through the cancer. And the number of times they were probably forced down to their knees begging God to help their faith. To walk through that difficult time. Now, these are all extreme examples. Um, and many of us have not had to face such extremes. Some of us have. Um, but sometimes, when we don't have instances like that in our life, we kind of, again, go into this robot mode. And there's a danger in that, because we begin to do things that look like faith, but aren't really faith, because we're doing them on our own ability. And it may look like it, we may feel like it, because we're praying, we're having devotions, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're going to church, but the question is, are we really exercising faith? So again, I think the challenge for us in this here is we sometimes kind of get a little stuck. And so as we look at this passage this morning, again, what I wanted to focus on is what it teaches us about faith in and of itself. Sometimes faith, a lack of it, prevents us from doing the things we need to do. Sometimes we need help in our faith. And then certainly, faith is always an expression of reliance upon God for it.